This is MSCI Perspectives, your source for insights for global investors and access to research and expertise from across the investment industry. I'm your host, Adam Bass, and today is July 8th, 2021. Today, you can't talk about factor performance in 2021 without talking about the value factor. More specifically, it's the story of its resurgence as parts of the world economy wake up from the medically-induced coma that governments place them in, in response to the pandemic. But as we approach the end of the second quarter, we sat down with a researcher. So I'm Hitendra Vasani. I'm part of MSCI's global research team based in London, with a specialization in factor investing and derivatives research. A representative from a large institutional investor. My name is Patrick Moranick. I'm the head of the International Equity Division uh, for the State of Michigan Retirement System. And one from the world's largest asset management firm. My name is Bob Hum. I head up U.S. Factor ETFs here at BlackRock. Our aim was to pull apart the value story a bit and place it in the context of the larger factor investment story. How it plays out for different folks at different places in the investment ecosystem. What's interesting is that, you know, factor ETFs is one of the fastest growing areas of the ETF market, right? It was about $25 billion a decade ago. It's eclipsed about $600 billion today. But what I find interesting is that most clients actually don't realize that they are factor investors, right? They don't understand what factor investing is. And I think it sometimes it get people overcomplicated. But the way that I think about it, it's rules-based, transparent, active. Right? All we're doing is taking strategies that active managers have been using their entire careers, like value, quality, momentum, and we're putting those strategies in the ETF vehicle for lower cost and more tax efficiency. That's it. I might be, uh, maybe I'll be dating myself a little bit now but, uh, with this analogy, but uh, so, so if you think about the way that we used to consume music, right, there was really kind of two options. So uh, we would either, one, kind of buy a CD and then get every song that that, that artist played. So if I wanted to listen to, to I don't know, Biz Marquee <laughs> back then and wanted hit only that one song, I would get all of his other kind of duds uh, that, that came along with it. Uh, or you could go to, if, if you remember these, these infomercials, the Jock Jam CDs, right? You'd, you'd have someone that would actually just pick and choose the songs across a bunch of different artists. You didn't get to choose that, but you outsourced that decision-making to the Jock Jams brand. Okay, Biz Marquee, Jock Jams, I'm with you so far. How does this relate back to investing? So 20, 30 years ago, there were really two options for you, right? You can either buy the index and buy everything, or you can outsource it for a fee to an active manager. I think what's different about today and, and what, what technology has been allowed us to do for factor investing is really pick and choose exactly what factors you want in your portfolio, right? So if I want value or quality or momentum, I can individually buy those, those factors. The same thing with Spotify, right? So Spotify allows me to pick and choose the songs that I want to listen to, as opposed to either listening to an entire CD or outsourcing it to uh, th- that Jock Jam uh, CD that, that you can buy off the shelf. And so, again, I think what Spotify and what, what factor ETFs have done is given investors or, or, or music listeners choice and the ability to customize your playlist or customize your portfolio. And so what's interesting there, or one of the things that's interesting with what you're talking about is the use of the term active management, especially because when we're talking about factors and we're talking about ETFs, 
it's not usually thought of in that light. Yeah, absolutely. So, so the way that we think about it is that anytime you're moving away from market cap, you are making an active decision, right? So, so if you are buying high quality companies, that is an active decision within your portfolio. And so, you know, what we think about from a factor lens is that we can now do this systematically just in a much more efficient way. Right. You know, I used to do mutual fund due diligence. So I've met with pretty much every active manager in the space. And, and the, the, the key phrase that I've always heard was, you know, I'm a bottom up stock picker looking for consistent earnings, strong balance sheets and low debt. Well, guess what? Now, today, because of technology, we can do that in our quality factor ETF by screening for your profitability, your ROE, your, your earnings consistency, the standard deviation of your earnings or, or your debt levels, your, your, your debt to equity ratio. Bob and I continue down this path, talking about the different ways that financial advisors work with their clients to put single-factor strategies, in this case, single-factor ETFs, putting them to work as a way to express a view or fill a role within a diversified portfolio. What about someone sitting on the other side of the table, though? How does, say, someone managing the international equities portion of pension assets for employees in the state of Michigan here in the U.S. put factors to work. We think about it as really just a systematic way of looking at the, the world. And really, that's another way of saying a consistent process, really for determining stock selection. And that stock selection um, influences the drivers of your returns, right? And so a factor, by definition, has to uh, effectively have a logical story, a why. So it, it helps bring um, a level of communication and transparency, we think, to, to what we're doing ultimately, which is to consistently beat that benchmark. We're more focused on that long-term small wins concept. You know, the hot dot or trying to figure out what's going to work in the next 12 months, we think it's difficult for a whole host of reasons. And then we look at this other concept, multi-factor portfolios, um, in, in our case, persistent exposure to certain multi-factors. And we just see all these wonderful benefits that, you know, why would we go the other route? For us, this makes a lot more sense. Words like consistent and process and the story of why. These are key concepts for Patrick and his team. They came up time and again throughout our conversation. But what's important to note here is how they lead directly to Patrick's view on the role of factors. We're international equity. We're basically all publicly traded um, emerging and developed market markets around the world. So it's we want what we're doing to work broadly in the world, and, and factors you know just fit really well. Um, you know, at the at the core, they're really the building blocks of what we do. And so we think about a return series. It's pretty simple: get exposure to international equity markets. That's the beta, and then select, in our opinion, the factors that make sense in combinations. We have implemented since really the late fall of 18, a factor strategy, a multi-factor strategy that is focused on, on quality, value, and momentum. And we went through a series of analysis where we looked at a tremendous amount of data back over um, at least 22 years of data for the actual benchmark that we have, uh, Acquiex US, the MSCI Acquiex US, but we also looked at some world data um, the MSCI World Index that goes back a lot further, 40 years, and tried to find some, if, you know, some combinations, some factors that made sense to us. The other thing it does is it, it really provides um, known risks, right? We, we're so we can clearly communicate either upwards or, like I said, downwards. We can communicate our strategy as well. 
to anyone that's either um, reviewing the team's work or actually creating the team's work. We think multi-factor approaches are perfect for that. Um, you know, understanding the relationships between these factors. And we view them sometimes as, as like family or extended family. They have profiles. They have personalities, if you will. They have a story, which is, again, back to what really is part of a core definition of what creates a factor. you got to have a why. Patrick's embrace of factors, however, extends beyond those mathematical relationships. It's helped us really develop as a team. And that's something that you don't see really written about in academia, but we think it's really important for any institutional is to know who they are as an investment shop, right? So we, it gives a clear kind of set of marching orders for all of us, including myself. And, and factors bring together um, the team in a way that I guess I underappreciated in the beginning. Um, but we're here now and, and it serves a purpose. As I mentioned at the top of the program, we're here to not only discuss different approaches to factor investing, but also look at factor performance during 2021 and the story of values upswing. For that, we turn to friend of the pod, Hitendra Varsani. So overall, uh, global equity markets have had a fifth consecutive quarter of positive returns. So we're living in exceptional times at the moment. With the reopening of economies and the rollout of vaccines, the value factor has demonstrated very strong performance and leadership in the first half of this year. And this really started out what some people call Pfizer Day, 9th of November 2020, when the efficacy of the Pfizer COVID jab was first announced to the world. November 9th, Pfizer Day. You heard it here first. But what's driving this performance? So there could be many reasons. Um, one factor that we're tracking is the vaccination rates um, based on first dose around the world. So Canada and USA stand around 67% and 53% respectively. But in contrast, uh, Europe is only at 39%. And it's really a mixed bag when you look at individual countries. Now, if you look at Asia, that's in a whole different ballgame in itself. Asia has only vaccinated at a rate of 23%. Japan at 20%. So we're seeing strong dispersion in vaccination rates across the globe. Now, markets are clearly forward-looking and often pricing events based on expectations as opposed to events being realized. And that's being reflected in the factor performance that we've seen. I think the idea of this reopening and, again, buying the, the most beaten up securities uh, over the past year has been um, beneficial, whether you're looking in the U.S., international, emerging markets. Um, but I, the one thing that I would say is that different parts of the globe are at different stages of that reopening. And so if you look at the U.S., we think that that is probably one of the areas that have the most advanced um, it's actually, I think, like the fourth uh, highest um, vaccination rate across uh, the globe. And you've seen that reflected in pricing. So the, the value factor since the post-vaccination is up 14% above the market. And if you look in international markets, it's only about 9% above the market. Right. And I think the reason being X, the UK, which have really high vaccination rates, you know, across international markets, it's really skewed uh, across the board. Right. So, for example, Japan, less than 16 percent of the population has one dose. You know, parts of Europe are, are closer in that 40 percent range. So they're a little bit further behind. Japan is is continues to surprise me whenever I hear hear those low rates. But what about emerging market countries, which are even further behind? 
what what is it looking like there? Uh, it, it's the same story, right? As international, I, I think if you look, I mean, we've all seen the the the, the tragic news out of India. Um, you know, they're at about a fifteen percent rate, but but you know, you look at Russia is at a thirteen percent, Malaysia at eleven. You know, Thailand at seven percent. You know, the, there's there's really a, a long ways to go uh, before we get back to normal, especially in a lot of these EM countries. And so, for that, you know, a lot of these undervalued securities and and value stocks still um, pose a you know pretty attractive upside, just given um, how far behind they are from a vaccination perspective. Value has been um, it's it's been that relative or that family member that. Um, took an extended vacation and disappeared for almost more than a decade. <laughs> so it, you know, it, they've they've come home. Uh, they're clearly in in pretty good shape this year. If you look at the performance, uh, values doing very well. Um, you know, relative to to any indice you look at, really, um, that resurgence we think comes with um, I don't know some caveats. Uh, you know, the first is that it the the irony of this statement is I just think hilarious. It's the valuation of value. So, so you know, the idea that value has worked and that it looks cheap relative at you know certain points in the last year to quality or even to momentum, um, I, I think is an interesting statement because the data we look at uh, says that yes, that it, that is indeed true. But we also think that comparing it to itself, and you can do this with anything in the world, right? We can look at the Acquiex US relative to itself and think about long-term compounded forward-looking returns. We can look at multiples. We can look at the median of stocks that make up that index through history. We can do the same exercise on factors, right? We, we can look at uh, Z-score spreads, all these sorts of things. And what we find is that the starting point for value prior to this great run that it's on um, really relative to itself was not that great, meaning that that at some point the companies that typically make up a value index um, suffer from some things that may get called into question, like what is the right multiple to pay for, you know, in some instances, heavy cyclical businesses. Which which tend to show up in the value index, uh, energies and you know um, uh, material stocks and in things um, even financials have a cyclical nature to it. We heard similar points from Hatendra and Bob. Bob pointed out that while the number one question from clients right now is whether they've missed the boat on value. Well, people forget that we were actually in the midst of the worst drawdown in a hundred years for value. Right. There's still a 40 percent differential between value and growth since the start of the drawdown in 2017. The overall direction of value since Pfizer Day, though, has been up. And to continue Patrick's prodigal son idea, not only has value come back home, he's brought along a surprising partner, Momentum. So, no, in simple terms, value indicates a low price relative to fundamentals, uh, momentum based on recent outperformance typically coinciding with higher prices. And these two strategies are negatively correlated most of the time, but both have delivered outperformance over extended periods. And the combination of these two adds to diversification. Now, what have we seen recently? Uh, The strong performance in value that we've seen over the last uh, six months or so has meant that our MSCI momentum indexes now has exposure to value more than it has in the past. In fact, when we're looking at our momentum indexes and they're rebalancing in the in, in the May quarter, 
we've seen turnover in the range of uh, high 50 to almost 70%. And that's in comparison to a typical average of around 40%. So investors may think, why is my momentum and value factor more correlated than it has in the past? And that's simply due to the fact that momentum has latched on to value exposure through its strong performance. Now, these two factors remain complementary, but also there are other factors that can add to diversification as well. We've mentioned quality, uh, low volatility. Uh, these are factors that have added uh, long-term diversification uh, to factor portfolios. The momentum factor looks more value today than it ever has looked uh, in the last, uh, let's just say, decade. And so there's an element of, I, I think that disconnect um, will be a brief period of time where we would suffer if the value thesis plays out, like it is truly um, going to be a shorter run in value. And then it will kind of kick back on. Momentum will probably shift back to like stuff that's working. You know, that's by definition really what it is. Um, and we think that pairs very nicely with quality and the entire ship kind of continues on through the waters. So we would acknowledge that the risk for us at least, but even other practitioners that are looking at these factors, there could be a period of time where if you like value, quality, momentum, where you experience kind of some um, lower returns, lower premia, if not negative in some instances, but that the long-term relationships begin to resume. And so if we're, if we're thinking about the next decade and we're talking about maybe in the next two or three years, this kind of plays out, then really we've got eight years of normality. This isn't the first time we've seen momentum hook up with value. Value has historically outperformed during economic upswings, and momentum is what Bob called a chameleon factor. By that, he meant it reflects whatever's in favor. So as you can imagine, uh, during during the, the, the early 2000s or, or after the, 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 the tech bubble, you know, growth-oriented securities were, were quite out of favor. And so the momentum indexes um, would have been buying uh, value-oriented securities. And so that was another time where we saw pretty high correlation between the factors. Now, we're not there yet uh, with what MT, uh, momentum ETF looks like relative to value, but you're starting to see kind of some of the um, some of the value securities enter that portfolio. So um, this time is slightly different from then, but there, there's no reason why if, if value continued to to be in favor, that that momentum would wouldn't continue to buy those securities. So um, there's nothing structurally uh, in place for momentum not to do that. Again, it is a rewarded factor uh, onto itself, and you want it to buy value securities if they are in favor. So uh, not there yet to, to what it looked like post tech bubble, but you know we're starting to see some value securities enter that that strategy. Let's put a pin in the value momentum story for just a minute. We'll get back there, but we need to take a bit of a detour and talk about another historical consequence of strong growth, namely inflation, which we've covered on the program before, but now we look at in terms of factors. So we live in a, a global economy, and in the current environment, these inflation risks are truly global. And there's two factors at play here. One is expectations of pent-up demand, and then secondly, supply chain bottlenecks um, due to various lockdowns across um, geographic regions. Now, we have seen uh, inflation in the U.S. Uh, jump to the highest rate in 2008 um, as the world's largest economy has rebounded from the coronavirus. Within Europe, 
we have gone um, above the European Central Bank's target, uh, and it's the highest level in almost three years. If you look at emerging markets and China in particular, that's an importer of inflation. It's exposed to uh, commodity prices rising, but it's also an exporter of goods and production to the rest of the world. And so this integrated economy and inflation risks is very much on everyone's mind. Inflation, for sure, is is very top of mind. Um, the other one would be that relationship that we were describing, uh, value and momentum, um, the unusual nature about that uh, relationship, at least in today's terms. Specifically in international, we'll, we'll look at our core strategy back through time to make sure that we're comfortable addressing maybe both of those relationships or those, those uh, I guess, um, potential issues. And so we looked, we looked at the inflation data. I mean, we have enough um, kind of returns-based analysis and we kind of have a philosophy around how we structure the quality value and momentum concept. Um, we're able to go back through time and just say, look, we've had some pretty good inflationary periods, at least over the last 40 years. What has been the story and how would your positioning and strategy kind of play out? So, you know, for us, we feel comfortable that we um, that won't be what really gets um, the core strategy or, or, or kind of broadsides it. Um, we think especially in, in general, public equities at the beginning of an inflation cycle, if indeed this is inflation. So, again, we, we're, we're going to make an assumption there, even if it is. Uh, that that they actually benefit for a while, that um, multiples tend to not have their severe correction, um, contraction, if you will, until we get to much higher levels uh, from where we're at today. And, and we're not even at a threshold, we think. Let's get a bit more specific about those 40 years of data and how inflation has affected factor investing. So we've taken a look at how factors have performed in various inflation and also real yield environments. Uh, using our deep history as a guidebook. The reason why we look at real yield as well is inflation is often accompanied with rising interest rates as well. And it's the spread between uh, inflation and rates that can matter for investors. Now, using data that extends back over 40 years covering multiple market cycles, we see three scenarios. So one where there's an inverse relationship between factors and inflation. Uh, one where there's a positive relationship. And the third is factors that have worked irrespective of that environment. So when we're looking at factors such as value, uh, we found a positive relationship with inflation, whereas in contrast, growth has had a negative uh, relationship with inflation. But what we found most striking in our research is that quality and momentum outperformed delivered active returns irrespective of whether inflation or real yields were high or low. Okay, I'm starting to see how this all comes together with the growing economy, high-performing stock markets, some inflation warning lights, eyes on central banks in terms of interest rates, value on the upswing, and marching in step with momentum. It's coming into focus. So from here, for what maybe we'll call Act 3 of the program, we're going to look more specifically at whether history affords any lessons. And as I promised, we're going to fold in that inflation question with the positive correlation of value and momentum as we do so. We heard Bob explain that the post-tech bubble period comes close to what we're experiencing right now, but it doesn't hit all the marks. Note, for that, 
we need to go back quite a bit further in time, about 60 years to the 1960s. You could look at the late 70s and say, yeah, that was different in Japan in the early. I mean, you can kind of go around the world and it, it isn't always uniform and inconsistent. Um, 96 forward, just the levels of inflation in the U.S. market. So it's, you know, just to, periodically, depending on when you're looking at inflation. What's interesting about the 1960s is it it, it kind of had its own environment that looked like that. And so, you know, um, I'm not I'm not a macro expert, but but there's elements of yeah, I, I would argue that the type of inflation and maybe the environment we're in feels a little bit more like that. And it's kind of interesting to think about this relationship between value and momentum exhibiting similar kind of profiles today. It almost lines up a little bit better. The good news is, is that uh, it, it doesn't last for forever as far as that relationship. And so we think this is the trouble with like factor timing, you know, in its, in its essence. And so we we think we're giving up effectively risk premium and momentum today you know you could forego kind of this period of time where it eventually disconnects we don't know when and that's the issue but um yes it, there are some parallels with inflation uh with momentum here's what also interesting general valuation of equity markets um you know that's very very similar where there's periods of time in the 1960s i, don't, I won't say they're necessarily as extreme as we're experiencing but but this idea of like was it a great go forward return on you know the s&p 500 and the answer is no uh not not at that point i mean some um value investors would say no there were much better entry points coming you know effectively so um yeah i, I think it's interesting you know history is rhyming a bit here for sure while the parallels to the 1960s provide insights and information that can help as investors plan their way forward, Patrick rightly points out that factor timing is a fraught strategy. As we spoke about earlier, his three watchwords as a large institutional investor are consistency, consistency, and consistency. But are there other, more recent data that investors can also figure into their strategies? Given our focus on value today, it likely comes as no surprise to hear this news about factor ETF flows. If you look in Q1, just in the large cap value space alone, there's over $20 billion in, in inflows into that category for, for large value ETFs. And I think it's not surprising. It's because that most investors are actually quite underweight that factor. Right. So if you think about just based on your portfolio, let's say you, you started um, in 2017 with a 50-50 portfolio of growth and value. If you hadn't rebalanced in that four-year period, you'd actually be looking at a 60% growth portfolio, 40% value. And so when we've actually analyzed um, you know, thousands of advisor portfolios, you know, over 60% were underweight value. And so I think what we're seeing today it's truly just inflows is trying to get people back to, to, to neutral. The other thing that I would say that we're starting to see is actually international flows. Uh, so I think people are realizing that you can express those same views within the U.S. as well as international. Uh, we've seen you know almost a billion dollars in international value uh, factor ETF uh, so far this year. The question is, historically speaking, would it have paid for investors to follow the money? To go with the flow? Hitendra and team asked themselves that very question. So our recent analysis has looked into the flows into global factor ETFs 
uh, you'll see in our research, should you go with the flow, uh, we've highlighted that yield, value and low size ETFs have seen enormous inflows year to date. Now, what does that mean? Uh, it means that investors have placed conviction into these single factor ETFs that have uh, typically done well during early stages of economic recovery. Now, the question is, uh, should you go with the flow? When there have been outsized moves uh, in terms of inflows and outflows in these factor ETFs relative to the history, um, the question is, is there a relationship between that and future returns going forward? In our recent research, we found the simple answer is yes. When single factor ETFs have gathered strong inflows above and beyond what they would typically accrue, um, say a two standard deviation event, uh, that's resulted in an outperformance of about 80 basis points, uh, whereas underperformance of 60 basis points on the flip side. Now, the caveat is our history is short. It's only around six years, but we thought it's something to continue to monitor as the market develops further. Whether looking back six years or 60, every investor is always looking for an edge. And while Hitendra, Bob, and Patrick come at these questions from different angles, in the end, we heard a similar message from each of them. When thinking about factor investing, I, I, I want to think about how, might, how can I be the most diversified as possible, right? If all of the factors have been rewarded over the long term and all of them have low to negative correlation amongst each other, there's a, a huge benefit for pairing factors together. You got to have a why. You got to have a story here. And we think that that story plays out in mathematical relationships. And those relationships allow you to build those blocks in a certain way that creates diversification, that creates consistency of returns. What are your expectations going in versus, um, you know, going back to the idea of short term performance and maybe we're more focused on that long term small wins concept. Whether it be 2008 crisis or even the recent COVID-19 crisis, um, one thing to recognize is market cycles can change quite rapidly. And in this early stage of recovery uh, that we've seen, and also in 2008, value was one of the first factors to come out winning uh, in that early stage. Now, as time passes, factor rotation typically happens, market goes into another state, and we see strong rotation. So rather than um, time the market, um, investors have typically uh, weathered these changes by being diversified across factors and across different strategies. That's all for this week. Our thanks to Hitendra, Bob, and Patrick, and to all of you for listening. For a deeper look into factor performance, register for the July 15th Markets in Focus webinar at MSCI.com. Next up on Perspectives, the Index Industry Association's Rick Redding returns to the program to explore the findings of the new ESG Focus Survey from the Association. We'll also have some special guests to discuss how these insights are playing out on the ground. Until then, I'm your host, Adam Bass, and this is MSCI Perspectives. Stay safe, everyone.